This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Just recently, I was in a park and a woman was asking, obviously, her partner for some money to buy a coffee. And he got quite violent verbally with her. And it seemed that she just didn't have her own finances. She was relying on him. Now, it's interesting that 80% of women are left when their partners die. There are more women, old women, than there are older men. And the majority of them have never looked after their own finances. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Abanu Gifford, a human rights campaigner based in London, England, and founder of the Asha Centre, a charity working for the empowerment of young people, sustainable development, and peace and reconciliation worldwide. Zabanu is the author of several books and holds countless awards, including the International Woman of the Year Award in 2006 for her humanitarian work, which spans over 50 years of grassroots and global activism. A pioneer for Asian women in British public life, Zabanu made history in 1982 by being elected as a liberal councillor in Harrow and being the first BAME, Black, Asian or Minority Ethnic Woman, to stand for Parliament. She was also elected to England's Liberal Party's federal executive. She's married to human rights lawyer Richard Gifford and has two sons and four grandchildren. Zabanu, welcome. Thank you. I just finished reading your biography, An Uncensored Life by Farida Master. You've worked tirelessly and fearlessly for women and the disadvantaged throughout your life, firstly through charities and public life, and now through your own charity, the Asha Centre, which is in the Royal Forest of Dean in Britain. This sounds like a magical place in a mythical forest. Can you tell us how you founded the centre and about the work that the centre is doing today? Of course I can. But may I say that nobody founds or accomplishes anything without God's grace. And I believe that very strongly. I also believe that you have to have people's blessings to achieve your vision. My vision for the Asher Center was there should be a place on our planet, which didn't belong to anybody, belonged to all communities and all faiths, and actually crossed all divides of race or gender or silly old prejudice that we carry from our ancestors, which need to be challenged and confronted today. I wanted the place to be in a very sacred place with nature, because I think nature is a healer. She's a teacher, and she's also our greatest mother. I remember when years ago, when I visualized the Asher Center, I thought that I would plant three cherry trees. And when eventually, it's a long story, which you can read in my biography, we found the place for the Asher Center. I couldn't stop laughing. And the person I was with got absolute hysterics because I used to insist that wherever I was, we would plant three cherry trees and we'd have nature with us. And there I was, and the God and the universe had given me the whole forest of Dean. 
And it is more than magical there. It is just utterly beautiful and sacred. And I've had many spiritual leaders come there, and of course, thousands and thousands of young people, and they all feel the vortex. They all feel that they're in a part of the world that is stunning, magical, and actually just transforms their lives. I'm just recently, we have a book at the Asher Center where people, if they feel like it, just write what they think. And recently, one young man has written, my soul rocks at Asher. And I think that's the highest praise anyone can give. It's really remarkable, the vision of the Asher Centre. You were quoted in the book saying that you wanted to find a beautiful, sacred place where people in all their diversity could come together and share their stories. But there's a much loftier goal as well, which is you're really trying to put an end to conflict in the world. Yes, we've had young people from Israel And you'll know that today in the news, there's fighting between Jews and Palestinians in Janin, and we had them over. And the media said it was the first time and the most creative way to bring the communities together through theater that they produced. We worked with young people from the Balkans. We worked with young people from South Africa. And again, they took a play back to South Africa, which was presented at Mandela's house. We've worked with Muslim and Hindus in conflict. And really, it's when people get to live with each other, to break bread, they realize they all have the same priorities and the same needs and the same wish in life. It's the getting to know each other that you realize they aren't the boogeyman. And you work with people. It's about interacting. It's about being kind to each other. And Asher is a place where They can do that because they don't bring or they can at least put aside their prejudice for a little while. Yes. And I read enough in your book to know that it didn't just happen. You put all your skills and all your resources into making this happen. So congratulations on that. To make anything happen, it's hard work. And there are many disappointments in life, but you pick yourself up and you dust yourself down and you carry on. As long as your vision is pure, then people come and they support you. It's quite remarkable. At the moment, we've nearly finished building at a new premises nearby to the Asher Center, Church Farm. We hope the first international women's center. Of course, we had budgets and budgets have gone mad because of Brexit, Britain leaving the European Union, because of COVID for two years, the price of everything going up. But I believe that Maybe even somebody listening to this podcast will suddenly say, I really admire women. I want to make a difference and I'm going to fund this because this is where women can come together and be empowered to take their rightful place in every part of of society. For me, I would love to see more women in public life. I think they bring a different dimension to bear. And I think no decision could be made unless it's a balanced decision with everybody taking part. So who knows? I believe in the magic in life and that many magical things happen, but you've got to be open to that magic. Wonderful. Zaboni, you've been at the forefront of campaigns to empower women through political and legal systems in the United Kingdom, but also in your home country of India. When you look back on all the work you've done, how important is financial literacy to the empowerment of women in both the developed and also the developing world? Well, I think it's absolutely vital because 
it gives you an independence, an independence to do what you think is right. And I believe my faith is Zoroastrianism, and we believe very strongly in free will. So I believe that to have free will, you need freedom. And you don't have freedom if you don't have financial literacy. So it is very important. I mean, just recently, I was in a park and a woman was asking, obviously, her partner for some money to buy a coffee. And he got quite violent verbally with her. And it seemed that she just didn't have her own finances. She was relying on him. Now, it's interesting that 80% of women are left when their partners die. There are more women, old women, than there are older men. And the majority of them have never looked after their own finances. Their male partner or their partner has done it for them, including my own mother-in-law. When my father-in-law died, she had never written a check in her life or paid any bills. And it came as a huge shock to her. Now, I hope in the new generation, we don't allow any girl anywhere in the world to be in that situation. I think it's very important. I would like to give you another example. In India, some years back, I went with a friend who was running the Elephant Family charity that was set up by the Queen of England's brother, Mark Shan. And they wanted help with a community in the Himalayas called the Gujar community who had been displaced by elephants. So I offered to go because I always believe before you give money to anybody, you should actually see what they're doing. And when we arrived there, there was a stage for us to speak. And I saw that there wasn't a single woman in the audience in this whole village. So I requested that the women were allowed to come and also take part. And I was told very roughly that the women had no power. So I just listened to that. And I asked them, would the woman please go into, there was a dilapidated sort of hut there. The men were very angry about that, but I informed them in no uncertain terms that if they didn't allow the women to talk to me privately, they would get no funds for their village. The women came along, they shuffled in, and we closed the doors and the windows. I just asked them, I said, what would you like? And they said to me, they didn't want sewing machines because they didn't know how to sew. They would like a mobile clinic to come to their village. But what they really wanted was to own a buffalo because the buffalo was where the power and the money in the community was. So I immediately gave them the first check to ensure that we had one buffalo for the village, which I named Buffalo Bill to everybody's amusement. And then I went back to England and I collected the money and ensured that every single woman in the village was given a buffalo. I went back to the village and the whole politics of the village has changed. The power structures have changed. The women are listened to because they hold the money. The money is the buffalo. So it's quite easy to change the dynamics of society. We can carry on talking about it till the cows come home, but we actually have to catch the buffalo's horns and we have to change society because we all know that it's wrong if everybody doesn't have power in their own rights to do what they think is right. So those are just two examples. So financial literacy is very, very important. Yes. And that buffalo story is really, I mean, it's charming, but it's also so illustrative because the buffalo was primarily the articulation of what the women actually wanted, not someone speaking for them. And secondly, it obviously changed the power dynamic, but it improved the power dynamic. It didn't sort of displace a power dynamic. No. It brought a balance to bear. 
right. a balance that should have been there from the first place where everybody's listened to and everybody's respected mm-hmm. and everybody has a say in how the community is run. Yeah. So you are a brilliant networker and fundraiser. I've learned that from reading about your life. When it comes to money, what were the main influences in your life when you were growing up? Well, I think the main influences were my grandmother, who I lived with in Pune in India, while my parents went to Britain and they bought a hotel in West London. And I was thinking, what was the first time that I actually dealt with money? I dealt with money with my grandmother. We used to play Monopoly. And I used to love to buy all the properties and I always wanted to win. And I learned how to count then. It was a wonderful way to teach people about land, about commodities. And also I learned about all the streets in central London. So when I arrived in London, I remember to my parents' house, or I should say hotel, and it wasn't painted red. I couldn't stop boo-hooing because I didn't think it was a real hotel. <laughs> but anyway, I, the hotel education was also very important with my parents because I had to interact with people. And of course, we had to deal with money because we had to take rent from people and they had to pay for the hotel rooms. I'd have to go with my parents to cash and carry. So I learned how to buy goods. And I learned that nothing was wasted, not even how you make beds or clean toilets or anything. Every part of your education is important. I remember I used to go every summer back to my grandmother because my parents worked so hard and I had my summer holidays with them in India. And I used to be very upset about seeing the poor children in the streets in Pune. So when I came back to London, I told my parents that they would have to give me some money to send for the poor children. So mommy and daddy said, well, it's up to you. We'd love to help you, but we think you yourself can do what you have to do to collect the money. So I made little flags with the cloth that my auntie had got from Hardy Amy's, who she was working with, who was then the Queen's dressmaker. And I made little flags and I stood outside the hotel and I sold the flags and I collected 10 pounds, which I then sent to Pandit Nehru. I think I was about seven and a half then for the poor children of Pune. Now, he wrote back to me, an unknown girl halfway across the world, and he was the Prime Minister of India then, and thanked me and said, if every girl collected the money, like that, then there would be no poverty in the world. And that was an inspiration to me. And I thought, as a politician, how many politicians are there in the world now that would write to an unknown girl and thank her and -hmm. inspire her, unless there was a photo opportunity for them? And which was so important, it was my parents encouraged me. They didn't say, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't stand outside the hotel. Somebody might kidnap you. You might lose the money. Anything might happen. They empowered me to be myself. And I think that's really important. And I'm I'm deeply grateful to my parents because they just allowed me to express my own personality. They didn't try to impose anything on me or they didn't want me to be anything. And I think that's really wonderful. I remember even with school reports, the reports would come back and mom and dad didn't really read it very much. And I would say to them, but you know, everybody's parents read school reports. And I remember daddy saying to me, Oh, well, he said, I know exactly what you're like. I don't need any teacher to tell me. So, you know, I was very fortunate. Yeah, very, very practical upbringing as well, growing up, uh, sort of learning in that business as well, it sounds like. Yes, learning hospitality, which is one of the huge tourism and hospitality today are huge businesses. 
and to actually learn it and to be part of it, not to go to hospitality school in Switzerland, but to actually learn it from a young age is is priceless. Now, a lot of families don't talk about money because they don't feel it's appropriate, but actually the opposite is true. So what do you know now about money that you wish you knew when you were younger? I think that money is a form of energy and it can be good or bad. It can empower you. It can empower you to enlighten, empower, enrich other people's lives if used well. Oh, it can be very destructive and corrosive. And I have up in my kitchen a little poster that I see every time I open to, to have my coffee and tea. And it says that 85 people, the richest people in the world, have the same amount of money as a 3.5 billion people in the world. Now, that is outrageous. And every time I see that, I think, goodness, this is how money is misused. Money should be flowing. Money should enable people to live good lives, but live lightly to sustain the world and not to be greedy and not to hoard, but to use it well. And I think that's what I learned. There are so many issues facing parents raising girls today. What advice do you have for parents raising girls in today's world? I think the most important thing is to cherish your children and then to connect and communicate with them with the highest ideals. So they learn by example. They learn by example. And I remember my mother used to say to me, she used to say, whenever I was a little bit depressed or wondering how I'd get through the day, she'd say, the day will come and the day will go. I think that's a very nice thing to instill in your children. And the other thing she used to always say to me was, as you sow, so shall you reap. And I've seen that. That's an eternal law, that whatever you do in life, it comes back. And I write books to inspire people. So I always write about inspirational people. And just recently, I've done an exhibition of the great famous Zoroastrians, the community I come from. And it's gone up. And I think to myself that Sir Jamshidji Tata, Forbes magazine has stated that he was the greatest philanthropist that ever lived. He gave $102 billion. I mean, that is an inspiration. And that's an inspiration for young people that you make money, but you use the money to enrich lives and to enlighten people. And that's what money is there for. That's why you make money and God gives you money. And I think that's very important because I think that inspires young people and it also encourages them to be great souls themselves. Yeah, very, very true and very, very wise words. Zabanu, where can people find out more about the Asha Centre? If you go onto the website, Asha is spelled A-S-H-A Centre. We have courses. You can come. I would just love you all to come. You can get revitalized there, renewed. You can relook at your purpose in life. And I would also like, if I may cheekily ask everyone, I would like people listening to the podcast and all the financial people in the world to really help us finish off this International Women's Centre. There is none in the world. There should be somewhere for half the world's population where we can train people, where they can come if they need refuge. We have 54 acres of the most beautiful British countryside. 
we have barns we want to turn into a theatre, we've got stables, we've got ponds, we've got forests, another magical forest where I want to put tree houses for young people. And that's how money should be spent. So anybody wants to make this happen or their group wants to make it happen, they can have it named after them or their loved ones. And I would be happy to show them around, even happier when the money arrives. <laughs> great and great. So we all have an open invitation to come and come. And anybody, everybody's got an open invitation. Asher is for everybody, and often we're near a very sacred well called St Anthony's Well, where lots of people come on pilgrimage to, and they see our centre and they ask permission to come in. And I tell them, anybody can come in. It's a stately home. It's free for everybody to come and enjoy. We have five thousand. Old English roses, we have tulips, we have orchards, we have a whole orchard of cherry trees, you'll be pleased to know. We've got labyrinths and we've got a hobbiton there, and it's for people to enjoy free of charge. We do not charge because I believe that nature and beauty is everybody's birthright. What an incredible legacy, Zabanu. Zabanu Gifford, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com.